Book Four, Chapter Thirteen of On War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. On War by Karl von Clausewitz. Translated by Colonel J. J. Graham. Book Four, Chapter Thirteen. Retreat after a lost battle. In a lost battle the power of an army is broken, the moral to a greater degree than the physical. A second battle, unless fresh favourable circumstances come into play, would lead to a complete defeat, perhaps to destruction. This is a military axiom. According to the usual course, the retreat is continued up to that point where the equilibrium of forces is restored, either by reinforcements or by the protection of strong fortresses or by great defensive positions afforded by the country, or by a separation of the enemy's force. The magnitude of the losses sustained, the extent of the defeat, but still more the character of the enemy, will bring nearer, or put off the instant, of this equilibrium. How many instances may be found of a beaten army rallied again at a short distance, without its circumstances having altered in any way since the battle? The cause of this may be traced to the moral weakness of the adversary, or to the preponderance gained in the battle not having been sufficient to make lasting impression. To profit by this weakness, or mistake, of the enemy, not to yield one inch breadth more than the pressure of circumstance demands, but, above all things, in order to keep up the moral forces to as advantageous a point as possible, a slow retreat offering incessant resistance, and bold courageous counterstrokes whenever the enemy seeks to gain any excessive advantages, are absolutely necessary. Retreats of great generals, and of armies inured to war, have always resembled the retreat of a wounded lion. Such is, undoubtedly, also the best theory. It is true that, at the moment of quitting a dangerous position, we have often seen trifling formalities observed which caused a waste of time, and were, therefore, attended with danger, whilst in such cases everything depends on getting out of the place speedily. Practice generals reckon this maxim a very important one. But such cases must not be confounded with a general retreat after a lost battle. Whoever then thinks by a few rapid marches to gain a start, and more easily to recover a firm standing, commits a great error. The first movements should be as small as possible, and it is a maxim in general not to suffer ourselves to be dictated to by the enemy. This maxim cannot be followed without bloody fighting with the enemy at our heels, but the gain is worth the sacrifice. Without it we get into an accelerated pace which soon turns into a headlong rush, and costs merely in stragglers more men than rearguard combats and besides that extinguishes the last remnants of the spirit of resistance. A strong rearguard composed of picked troops, commanded by the bravest general and supported by the whole army at critical moments, a careful utilization of ground, strong ambuscades, wherever the boldness of the enemy's advance guard and the ground afford opportunity, in short, the preparation and system of irregular small battles, these are the means of following this principle. The difficulties of a retreat are naturally greater or less according as the battle has been fought under more or less favourable circumstances, and according as it has been more or less obstinately contested. 
the battle of jena and la belle alliance show how impossible anything like a regular retreat may become if the last man is used up against a powerful enemy now and again it has been suggested to divide for the purpose of retreating therefore to retreat in separate divisions or even eccentrically such a separation is made merely for convenience and along with which concentrated action continues possible and is kept in view is not what we now refer to any other kind is extremely dangerous contrary to the nature of the thing and therefore a great error every lost battle is a principle of weakness and disorganization and the first and immediate desideratum is to concentrate and in concentration to recover order courage and confidence the idea of harassing the enemy by separate corps on both flanks at the moment when he is following up his victory is a perfect anomaly a faint-hearted pedant might be overawed by his enemy in that manner and for such a case it may answer but where we are not sure of this failing in our opponent it is better let alone if the strategic relations after a battle require that we should cover ourselves right and left by detachments so much must be done as from circumstances is unavoidable but this fractioning must always be regarded as an evil and we are seldom in a state to commence it the day after the battle itself if frederick the great after the battle of colin and the raising of the siege at prague retreated in three columns that was not done out of choice but because the position of his forces and the necessity of covering saxony left him no alternative bonaparte after the battle of brienne sent marmont back to the Aube, whilst he himself passed the seine and turned toward troyes but that this did not end in disaster was solely owing to the circumstance that the allies instead of pursuing divided their forces in like manner turning with the one part blucher toward the marne while with the other schwarzenberg from fear of being too weak they advanced with exaggerated caution chapter fourteen night fighting the manner of conducting a combat at night and what concerns the details of its course is a tactical subject we only examine it here so far as in its totality it appears as a special strategic means fundamentally every night attack is only a more vehement form of surprise now at the first look of the thing such an attack appears quite pre-eminently advantageous for we suppose the enemy to be taken by surprise the assailant naturally to be prepared for everything which can happen what an inequality imagination paints to itself a picture of the most complete confusion on the one side and on the other side the assailant only occupied in reaping the fruits of his advantage hence the constant creation of schemes for night attacks by those who have not led them and have no responsibility seldom take place in reality these ideal schemes are all based on the hypothesis that the assailant knows the arrangements of the defender because they have been made and announced beforehand and could not escape notice in his reconnaissances and inquiries that on the other hand the measures of the assailant being only taken at the moment of execution cannot be known to the enemy but the last of these is not always quite the case and still less is the first if we are not so near the enemy as to have him completely under our eye as the austrians had frederick the great before the battle of hochkirch then all that we know of his position must always be imperfect as it is obtained by reconnaissances patrols information from prisoners and spies 
sources on which no firm reliance can be placed, because intelligence thus obtained is always more or less of an old date, and the position of the enemy may have been altered in the meantime. Moreover, with the tactics and mode of encampment of former times, it was much easier than it is now to examine the position of the enemy. A line of tents is much easier to distinguish than a line of huts or a bivouac, and an encampment on a line of front, fully and irregularly drawn out, also easier than one of divisions formed in columns, the mode often used at present. We may have the ground on which a division bivouacs in that manner completely under our eye, and yet not be able to arrive at any accurate idea. But the position again is not all that we want to know. The measures which the defender may take in the course of the combat are just as important, and do not by any means consist in mere random shots. These measures also make night attacks more difficult in modern wars than formerly, because they have in these campaigns an advantage over those already taken. In our combats the position of the defender is more temporary than definitive, and on that account the defender is better able to surprise his adversary with unexpected blows than he could formerly. Therefore what the assailant knows of the defensive, previous to a night attack, is seldom or never sufficient to supply the want of direct observation. But the defender has on his side another small advantage as well, which is that he is more at home than the assailant, on the ground which forms his position, and therefore, like the inhabitant of a room, will find his way about in the dark with more ease than a stranger. He knows better where to find each part of his force, and therefore can more readily get at it than is the case with his adversary. From this it follows that the assailant in a combat at night feels the want of his eyes just as much as the defender, and that therefore only particular reasons can make a night attack advisable. Now these reasons arise mostly in connection with subordinate parts of an army, rarely with the army itself. It follows that a night attack also, as a rule, can only take place with secondary combats, and seldom with great battles. We may attack a portion of the enemy's army with a very superior force, consequently enveloping it with a view either to take the whole, or to inflict very severe loss on it by an unequal combat, provided that other circumstances are in our favour. But such a scheme can never succeed except by a great surprise, because no fractional part of the enemy's army could engage in such an unequal combat, but would retire instead. But a surprise on an important scale, except in the rare instances in a very close country, can only be effected at night. Therefore, if we wish to gain such an advantage as this, from the faulty disposition of a portion of the enemy's army, then we must make use of the night, at all events to finish the preliminary part, even if the combat itself should not open till towards daybreak. This is therefore what takes place in all the little enterprises by night against outposts and other small bodies, the main point being invariably through superior numbers and getting round his position to engage him unexpectedly in such a disadvantageous combat that he cannot disengage himself without great loss. The larger the body attacked, the more difficult the undertaking, because a strong force has greater resources within itself to maintain the fight long enough for help to arrive. On that account, the whole of the enemy's army can never, in ordinary cases, be the object of such an attack, for, although it has no assistance to expect from any quarter outside itself, still it contains within itself sufficient means of repelling attacks from several sides, particularly in our day, when every one from the commencement is prepared for this very usual form of attack. Whether the enemy can attack us on several sides with success 
depends generally on conditions quite different from that of its being done unexpectedly without entering here into the nature of these conditions we confine ourselves to observing that with turning an enemy great results as well as great dangers are connected that therefore if we set aside special circumstances nothing justifies it but a great superiority just such as we should use against a fractional part of the enemy's army but the turning and surrounding of a small fraction of the enemy and particularly in the darkness of night is also more practicable for this reason that whatever we stake upon it and however superior the force used may be still probably it constitutes only a limited portion of our army and we can sooner stake that than the whole on the risk of a great venture besides the greater part or perhaps the whole serves a support and rallying point for the portion risked which again very much diminishes the danger of the enterprise not only the risk but the difficulty of execution as well confines night enterprises to small bodies as surprise is the real essence of them so also stealthy approach is the chief condition of execution but this is more easily done with small bodies than with large and for the columns of a whole army it is seldom practicable for this reason such enterprises are in general only directed against single outposts and can only be feasible against greater bodies if they are without sufficient outposts like frederick the great at hochkirk this will happen seldomer in future to armies themselves than to minor divisions in recent times when war has been carried on with so much more rapidity and vigour it has in consequence often happened that armies have encamped very close to each other without having a very strong system of outposts because these circumstances have generally occurred just at the crisis which precedes a great decision but then at such times the readiness for battle on both sides is also more perfect on the other hand in former wars it was a frequent practice for armies to take up camps in sight of each other when they had no other object but that of mutually holding each other in check consequently for a longer period how often frederick the great stood for weeks so near to the austrians that the two might have exchanged cannon shots with each other but these practices certainly more favourable to night attacks have been discontinued in latter days and armies being now no longer in regard to subsistence and requirements for encampment such independent bodies complete in themselves find it necessary to keep usually a day's march between themselves and the enemy if we now keep in view especially the night attack of an army it follows that sufficient motives for it can seldom occur and that they fall under one or other of the following classes one an unusual degree of carelessness or audacity which very rarely occurs and when it does is compensated for by a great superiority in moral force two a panic in the enemy's army or generally such a degree of superiority in moral force on our side that it is sufficient to supply the place of guidance in action three cutting through an enemy's army of superior force which keeps us enveloped because in this all depends on surprise and the object of merely making a passage by force also allows a much greater concentration of forces four finally in desperate cases when our forces have such a disproportion to the enemy's that we see no possibility of success except through extraordinary daring but in all these cases there is still the condition that the enemy's army is under our eyes and protected by no advance guard as for the rest 
most night combats are so conducted as to end with daylight so that only the approach and the first attack are made under cover of darkness because the assailant in that manner can better profit by the consequences of the state of confusion into which he throws his adversary and combats of this description which do not commence until daybreak in which the night therefore is only made use of to approach are not to be counted as night combats end of chapter fourteen recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia on war by karl von clausewitz translated by colonel j j graham